tangible. It's wonderful to know God's in us. It's wonderful to know that when we gather together two or more and he's present here with us, but there's a tangible presence of God. And when Paul experienced that, it turned his life upside down, and then through him, God turned the world upside down. And when we have an experience of him, we don't have to be told to go out and share the gospel. You can't keep us quiet. And so we need to recognize where we are. We're not filled the way we need to be filled. And so just begin to believe that God's going to begin to tr- put those things, that, those, those desires in your heart. So again, thank you. Thank you, D2L. You did a great job. Really appreciate it tonight. Let's pray. Let's get into what God has to say to us tonight because we're going to get into a little bit of deep water tonight. Uh, Pastor Chris sort of led us into deep water on Sunday. We're going to do more of that on this coming Sunday, but this is a little different direction. So, Father, we come to you and thank you, Lord, for the time of worship. And we open our hearts to you now that you may speak to us individually, personally. Every one of us in this room and that's watching online has gone through stuff, gone through issues in life where things didn't turn out the way we wanted them to do, where we found ourselves in situations we don't know how we got into it, and we're trying to figure out what happened and how we got out. And tonight I believe you want to give comfort to those that are struggling. You want to give direction to those that may be confused and don't understand, and you want to help to guide us and to lead us together. And so, Father, I'm trusting you to take what I believe you put in my heart and to the Word of God and to begin to speak to us about some things that may be difficult for us to look at. But your grace and your comfort in us will help comforter, will help us to do that. And for that, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, I was uh, a doctor I was meeting with a few weeks, a few months ago, knows I'm a pastor, and she said, how, how do you choose your messages? And I said, well, it's different each time. And the one for tonight is a little bit unique for me. Um, our team usually asks whoever's ministering for the title in advance, and I got a, a message, text message, I think it was yesterday or the day before, kind of pressing me a little, you know, Pastor John, I need your, your title, your message for Wednesday night, and I had no clue. And uh, they're kind of used to that. So I got kind of frustrated, and I just said, just put a question mark down. <laughs> I wasn't that important we come up with. Put a question mark down, and that's, I hoped it was bigger than that. And then I began, so the, the, I began to think about a question mark. And, and the, que- the, the question that came together with me is, why? We're going to talk about why tonight. The title tonight is, Why? I was a philosophy major in college, and uh, one of the, the jokes, it may have been a true story, but one of the professors, one, I've forgotten which subject it was, but he told the story about how this very wise and in, in intellectual professor after a whole year of, of, of the class uh, prepared the exam and the students came in and they opened the exam which was back then was in a book uh, and the, 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 the question was one word why because he'd been challenging them to think so they all later put their heads down they all start writing this one student writes closes his book gets up hands it back to the professor and walks out you know, what in the world could he have said so he opened the book and the answer was why not because he challenged them to question things. I thought that would go over bigger than that, but anyway, <laughs> it went over bigger in a philosophy class. So we're going to talk about why tonight, but why from God's perspective? It's a simple question, which seems so obvious when we get into situations and something happens. Well, why did that happen? 
What's behind it? What caused that? But in certain areas of our life, it's a question that's used by Satan to seduce us into self-pity, self-consciousness, self-righteousness, and anything else that begins with self. And it usually is expressed. We may not say it, but it comes out like this. Why did this happen to me? What did I do wrong? Why has this happened to me? How come everybody else has got this and somehow this is not in me? It's funny because I was having this conversation with my wife on the way over. (laughs) I was feeling sorry for myself about something. So I need to hear this tonight. Why is it so hard? Why is the world the way it is? Why didn't my life turn out the way I wanted it to? And I imagine that if we all get kind of quiet inside, we've all had these questions. You may not even be conscious that you're asking these questions. Now understand this. There is a certain place for asking the question, why? And that's when you sincerely want to learn a lesson. So in school, it's perfectly correct for a student at the right time, maybe not in the middle of class, to ask the question, well, why this? Why that? And that's really what this philosophy professor was trying to stimulate in people. But when it comes to certain issues of life, when it has to do with questioning God, questioning and challenging God, why did you let this happen? God, what happened? What went wrong? Now, again, if you're looking for an answer for God to correct you and give you an understanding, sometimes he will and sometimes he won't. So we're going to look at why and God's answer to why. Because God has an answer to why. The why we're looking at is different than the why in school. So to begin, we're going to go back to the first question time this was ever asked. It's in Genesis chapter 3. Almost everything that goes wrong happens in Genesis chapter 3. Now, the, as you all know, because you're here, because you're students of the Bible, you've been around most of you long enough to know that in Genesis 1 and 2, God's created man and woman. He's created the Garden of Eden. He's created everything else, given them responsibility. And then God has given them one commandment. It wasn't advice. It wasn't a suggestion. It wasn't counsel. It was a commandment. And the commandment was, you can eat of every tree in the garden and enjoy it, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And he tells them what will happen if they do. Because if you do, in dying, literally in the Hebrew it says, in dying you will die. Couldn't have been any simpler. You can do anything you want. You just can't eat of that tree. So now Satan comes up, the serpent. And notice he's more cunning than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. So what's going to go on here is the result of cunning, deceitfulness. And that fits in with what we're talking about. And he said to the woman, notice he's asking a question. Has God said to you, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, the first mistake was she has no obligation to answer him. But she's, he's, he's appealing to her mind, to ask questions. Next verse. And the woman said to the serpent, see, she knew, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Next verse. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it nor touch it, lest you die. Now Satan's getting bolder. Next verse. And the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. So he's directly contradicting God. Next verse. 
Oh, oh yeah, go. And the Lord, the Lord said to Satan, no, no, go back. I, I, I sold you short a verse. Okay. Yeah. You will surely not die. And then the next verse is, verse, I should have given you first thrive. I'll get it here. That's why I bring this with me. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what Satan's saying here is he's getting her to question why God said not to eat of that tree. God didn't give them an explanation. He just told them, don't eat of this tree, and this is what's going to happen if you do. Satan's tempting her to question why. Why does God do this? Why does God say this? Because in the questioning, what he's after here is to get her and then her husband to substitute their own independent judgment about what God has told them not to do. And because they gave in to this, you and I struggle with this every day of our life, and so is all of mankind. So the root of this questioning of why, of questioning God, why this, why that, and again, it's one thing if you're looking to learn something. It's another thing if you're questioning what God has done, or in your mind, what God has not done. So, this Satan tempts them to question why instead of obeying. And this opens the door to questioning God's character and God's intentions. Now, there's a book in the Bible which we're going to look at tonight. It's the book of Job. It's one of the most difficult books in the Bible for a number of reasons. It's difficult because it's not just written like Paul writes his letters, which are instructions and they're organized. It's written like a stage play. It's a drama that's acted out. One of the reasons it's difficult is because there's a lot of dialogue back and forth and it's very poetic. But it's also difficult because it deals with a very difficult and challenging issue. And the difficult and challenging issue, which is one of the major issues that mankind has always wondered, why do good people suffer? Because we have inbuilt in us a sense of justice, that if somebody does something wrong, they ought to get pay a penalty for it. But if I'm doing what's right and yet something still goes wrong, why am I suffering? Why, why am I going through this? Now, it's one thing if you and I are dealing with one another. It's another thing when we're dealing with God, who's all-powerful and almighty and all-knowing. So we're going to look at this book from that perspective, because most of this book is a discussion of why. And then we're going to look at God's answer to why. So let's give a little bit of background here. First of all, about the book. It's written as a stage for you. All this is in my notes. You can download them. Most of the difficult... Most difficult, no, you may not, because I didn't give them to the person I was supposed to. One of the most difficult to understand, because we want, try to draw, this is good, we try to draw our own conclusions of what this book means instead of taking it for what it says. I have heard sermons, I have preached some sermons about what this book is about, and all of those sermons and my own teachings on this are based on our own conclusions of what God's saying here, instead of just taking it at face value for what God says. You know, one of the things we tend to do, preachers, is we'll tend to take 
our view of something and, and force it into the scriptures to force the scriptures to say what we think that they ought to say. And this is a book that's very prone to that. So but we're going to look at it for just what it says. Again, it's written as a stage play. It's also very confrontational because it challenges our sense of what we think God should do and what we think God should not do. This is one of the oldest books in the Bible. We don't know a whole lot about Job, except he probably lived somewhere around the time of Abraham, somewhere in there. Um, he, we do know this. But we know from the book he was a very wealthy man. In fact, he was one of the wealthiest men in the region. He was very highly respected. People would come and they would sit at his feet. Whether and Very often, the, the wise men in a community or in a city would sit at the gate and people would come to the city gate and they would ask them to resolve their issues, give them counsel and advice. And Job was one of these men. People came to him for counsel and he was known for being very, very, very wise. He was a family man. He had a wife. He had seven sons and three daughters. And his children, we know from the first chapter, gathered regularly. They were adults. They gathered regularly in, in, in each other's house. They would move around and they'd party. They would drink wine all night and, and, and Job worried about them. He was constantly concerned about the fact that it literally says that they would curse God because they were drifting away to a lifestyle that was dissipation. And he was worried about them and so he prayed, but his prayers were prayer of fear, not prayers of faith. Because later on we're going to see, he says, that which I feared most has come upon me. And then chapter 1 and chapter 2 reveal a challenge. It takes us up into the heaven. We first start out by seeing Job's family. And Job's what's going on in his children's house and what's going on inside of Job. And then the scene moves into heaven. And we don't understand all of what this means, but it basically says the sons of God, which most likely are angels, they appear before God, and among them is Satan. And Satan challenges God about Job, because God has testified about Job that he is an upright man, and he's a righteous man, and he, he avoids evil. Now, it's one thing if your wife looks at you and says, well, my husband's a great guy, he doesn't sin, he walks right before God. But it's another thing when God says this about you. God's testimony about Job is he is an upright, honest, good man. And God's testimony is he avoids evil. And Satan comes and challenges God because Satan says, yes, but does he serve you? because he respects you and honors you, or does he serve you because of what you do for him? You have put a hedge of protection around him, and you have blessed him and prospered him, and I, I, wanted, I guarantee you, Satan's saying, that he serves you because of what you do for him, not because of the love and respect he has for you. So I'm challenging you, God, for you to put your hand on him and take away from him those blessings that you have bestowed. Take away from him the protection you bestowed, and let's see whether he'll curse you or not. And God's answer is, and there are a number of different explanations I've heard about this, we're just going to take it at face value. God says, all that he has is in your hands. Only you can't take his life. And so that happens, first of all, and then Job has a day you never want to have. You think you have a bad day? Read chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Job. Because in one day, 
Job loses all of his possessions. Job loses all of his means of, li- of livelihood, which is his livestock and farm. And then where all his kids are gathered together, a wind comes along, the roof falls, and he loses all of his children. The only one in his family didn't lose is his wife. And it might have been a blessing if he had, but I'm not going there. Let's go to chapter 2, because I gave you some verses there, I believe. Chapter 2, verse 3. And the Lord said to Satan, so now God's bragging about him. This is the second uh, occurrence. Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth. This is God. He's blameless and an upright man who fears God, shuns evil, and he still holds fast to his integrity after he's lost all of his family. Although you incited him against me to destroy him, notice this, without cause. Okay, go on. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. In other words, you put pressure on his life, and he'll sell everything out, including you. But stretch out your hand now, touch his bone and his flesh. So now we're going to go after his health. And he will surely curse you to your face. Next verse. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all he is is, all he is, is in your hand, but spare his life. Next verse. Is that all I gave you? I guess it is. No, no, keep going. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils, and the sole of his feet took the crown of his head. So his skin just breaking out in these boils that are, ooh, I don't want to offend you, but they're oozing and they're itching. Keep going. And he took for himself a potsherd, which is a clam like a clamshell, with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of ashes. What that means is he isn't that he'd smoked a lot. It's when they were when they were mourning, when they were suffering, they would they would take ashes and they would just sit in them. Verse nine. His wife said, This is why she was so valuable to him. Do you still hold your integrity? Curse God and die and just get this over with. Verse 10. But he said to her, You speak as one foolish woman speaks. Shall we indeed not shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Now he's not saying this came from God. This is his thinking. Understand this. Every word in the Bible is inspired by God, but not every word is spoken by God. I'll give you an example. There's things Satan says that are in the Bible. Clearly, that's not God speaking to us, but he said it. It's accurate. In this, Job did not sin with his lips. Verse 11. Now when Job's three friends, we're going to talk about them in a minute. You don't ever want to have friends like this, but some of you have. Job's three friends heard all this adversity that had come upon him. Each one came from his own place, and these are their names. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namanite. For they made an appointment together to come and to mourn with him. So they're coming to comfort him. And to, well, and to comfort him. Verse 12. And when they raised their eyes from afar, they didn't even recognize him. They lifted up their voices and wept, and each one tore his robe. That's one of the signs they would do of disgust and of mourning. And they sprinkled dust on their head towards heaven. Verse 13. And so they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. 
and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. They're getting off to the right start. They've come to be with him in his suffering. So often when we know people that have gone through a crisis, they've lost a loved one, or they're going through some very difficult, challenging times, we want to do what these guys are about to do. We want to come and help them to feel better by giving them advice, giving them answers. And we're going to see, first of all, you don't know what to say. You don't have an answer. And the smartest thing you can do when you don't have an answer is to not try to give one, is to keep your mouth shut. Proverbs says, in the abundance of words is the opportunity for sin. So what they do here to begin with is exactly right. They're just with him in his sorrow. They're just with him so that he's not alone. And then Job opens his mouth and begins to complain. And Job begins to basically say, I wish I'd never lived. I wish I'd never been born. It's all poetic. It's all drawn out. He said, you know, the day that I was born is a day that I should have mourned. It would have been better if I had never been born. I'm not going to ask you if you've ever had that thought. So Job is sincere. He's expressing his grief. He's expressing his mourning. And now these three friends of his decide they're going to comfort him by telling him why he's going through what he's going through. Every one of these answers is an effort, is their opinion of why. And each one of these is a destructive and a, response, a selfish response. Job's response to this suffering is that he despairs of his life. It would be better if I'd never been born. In Job 3.25, put that up. For the thing that great, I've greatly feared has come upon me, and what I've dreaded has happened to me. That's a very powerful verse. This is a little side message, but fear opens the door to Satan. So evidently, when we see this in chapter 1, Job was afraid that something was going to happen to his kids because he knew they were going off on the wrong track. Here's advice to parents. So Job sees something going wrong, and his first reaction is to pray, but he's praying out of fear. He's not praying out of faith. And the motive with which you pray determines everything. I remember years ago, it was a young lady that was, grew up in this church, and she had been diagnosed with a disease that was fatal. And, and, and she came in, and she was counseling with Pastor Ray, and he was meeting with her in the, in, the, uh, count, in the conference room that we have. And I went in there. There's also a library. I went in there to get a book. I didn't mean to interrupt him. And I'm in there, and I found the book. I was, and as I walked past this girl, she's a teenager, diagnosed with this terrible disease, and she's in getting comfort from Pastor Ray, who's so good at this. He's giving her scriptures of comfort. They're going to pray together. And as I walk past the behind her, I hear so clearly in me the Lord say, ask her if she's ready to die. And I said, I can't do that. She's in here looking for hope and comfort, and I'm supposed to ask her if she's ready to die? The Lord says, ask her if she's ready to die. And I said, I can't do that. I'm, she's looking for comfort. And the Lord said something to me I've never forgotten. 
He says, because unless she's ready to die, every prayer she offers for healing is going to be based on the fear she's going to die. And the root of what's in her heart when she prays is, what, is what's going to happen. So what's in your heart is, this is why the Bible says in Proverbs so clearly, guard your heart with all diligence because out of your heart flow the issues of life, the forces of life. And one of those forces of life is faith. Faith flows out of your heart, which is why Jesus said in several places, the Bible says, and Jesus, and as long as you don't doubt in your heart, but you believe in your heart, you're saved by believing your heart that God, He was raised from the dead. Our prayers are answered because we believe in our heart and we don't let doubt in our heart. So what gets into your heart determines what comes out of your heart, which is where the force of life comes from. But fear is also a force. And if Satan's able to sow fear into your heart, I don't care if you're praying 24 hours a day. If it's motivated by fear, there's no force, there's no force of faith that will move Satan away. In fact, you're using his own force against you. So it may well be that it was Job's fear that opened the door. So when God says, all that he has is in your hand, it may not be that God was putting it in his hand. It may that Job, maybe that Job put all of this in Satan's hand by being afraid for a long period of time and then vocalizing his fear. Fear is not something to fool around with. It is a spiritual force. That's just a side message. And parents have been there. You get teenagers, and I've, I've, met, I've met with so many parents, and they, they, their kids grow up, and they're, they're even in church, and all of a sudden, they begin to kind of drift away, and their clothes change, and their hairstyle changes. They're being influenced, and you begin to get afraid that somebody's going to draw them away from God, and so you start praying. But instead of praying in faith, you're praying in fear, because you keep looking, you keep looking at the trends you see, and you become afraid, so now you're praying in fear. And that's just what Job was doing. So the answer is, you've got to go back and get in faith. And it's faith in who God is. It's faith in God's will for your children. It's faith in what God can do. And don't get moved by what you see. Don't get moved by what you feel. Don't get moved by what your kids say. Be moved only by what God's word is saying. Ask God for a promise that you can stand on. And then you stand on that promise in faith and you're not moved by what your kids say. You're not moved by what they look like. You're standing on the force of God and the power of God who can change their hearts and change their mind much more than your fear and anxiety can do. That was worth the price of admission tonight right there. Praise God. All right, we're going to move on. So Job and his friends begin to debate. This is three cycles where, where Job says something his friends, one or more of these friends, answers him with what they think, why Job is going through this. The whole focus of this conversation from chapter 3 all up until chapter 38 is why. It's their opinions as to why. And these reflect in many ways the opinions that we often have. They're very common. Why? So the question is they debate, why has this happened to Job a righteous man. And these are very common whys. Let's look at the beginning of Job chapter 4, verse 1, 1 through 4. Here's the first one. Eliphaz, the termite, I mean Temanite. He answered and said, this is his view. 
If one attempts a word with you, will you become weary? In other words, you're going to listen to me? But who can withhold himself from speaking? In other words, I can't keep my mouth shut here. Surely you have instructed many and you have strengthened the weak hands. He's just building a case. He said, you've, you've, been, you've been encouraged many people. You've done good things for many people. You've got good advice. You've encouraged people. You've strengthened weak hands. Verse 4. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling and you've struggled and you've strengthened the feeble knees. In other words, why is this happening to you? Keep going. But now it comes on you and you get weary. Isn't this a great comfort? You've been able to bring comfort and advice and help to other people, but a little pressure comes on you and you cave in. You become weary and it touches you and you're troubled. This is a great comfort, isn't it? Is, now look at this. this is, you've got to learn how to read this carefully. Is not your reverence for God your comfort, your confidence? And the integrity of your ways, your hope? It's easy to read over that. We're going to talk more about this next week because we're going to get into a deeper lesson on this book. What's really going on here. But notice what this friend says. You, you, have, you, you revere God. You reverence God. You ought to be confident because you reverence God and, and, and because of your integrity. That's what your hope is built on. We're going to find out that that didn't hold him up for very long. It was like Peter. You remember Peter? Peter was always bold to step out. So when Jesus comes walking on the water in the middle of the storm, Peter's the one that says, Lord, if that's you, bid me to come. I want to come out and do what you do. Peter was always the first one to open his mouth, first one to be bold to say things, and there were times he got it right. He was the one that says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus said, flesh and blood did not tell you that, but my Father who's in heaven. Of course, then Peter turns around and rebukes him for saying he's got to go to the cross. Peter was the one that was confident in his reverence, confident in his commitment to Christ. And Peter's the one that denied him three times when the pressure came on. Jesus restored him. I've said this a number of times. But John, the Apostle John, his confidence was not in his commitment to Christ. John refers to himself in his gospel as the one whom Jesus loved. John's confidence was in how much Jesus loved him, not on how much he loved Jesus. When your confidence is in anything of your own about your relationship with God, God's going to put pressure on it somewhere to show you that that's not enough to stand on. And this is what's going on here. We're going to talk in more depth about this next week. This is kind of an opening and introduction to this. So I'm going to very briefly summarize uh, what, these three, what these three friends advised him. First of all, God must be punishing some sin because he always does what's right. He always, so he always punishes sin, so if you're getting punished, you must have committed sin somewhere. That's what religion teaches us. And we can fall into that. When something goes wrong in our life and we don't understand why, 
we start looking, what did I do wrong? Well, you may be an appropriate thing to ask God, is there something that I've missed, if there's something I'm wrong, but in most cases, you're going to know it because the Holy Spirit's been tapping on you. Pastor Chris on Sunday did a great job. He talked about things in our life to surrender. And, you know, we, we get tempted, well, I've got to go on this deep hunt to figure out what I've got to surrender. Most of us don't. <laughs> it's whatever you've been prompted at inside. Whatever it is you're trying to avoid looking at are usually the things that Holy Spirit's trying to get you to look at. But often what we'll do when we don't understand this is we'll start going inside of ourselves and we'll start, we'll start questioning, have I sinned here? Have I sinned there? And you're opening the door to Satan because he'll tell you all kinds of things because he's trying to rob your confidence before God. So the, the first thing basically they're telling him is that, well, you must have sinned somewhere because God wouldn't let this happen to you if you hadn't sinned because God always does what's right. The second why that they give him is God must be teaching you something. This is often an explanation. And there's an element of truth in this, and this is what we'll talk about next week. God must be teaching you something. So that's why you're sick. God must be teaching you something. That's why you lost so-and-so. God must be teaching you something. That's why you lost your job. Well, maybe he is. Maybe you need to be more faithful to work. But, but the, the first place we go to is, uh, what, what, I must have done something wrong. God's trying to teach me something. And the third one, basically, is this. God's just smarter than we are, and there's nothing we can do, so we just need to endure. That's what most of the church world believes. It's based on a doctrine called the sovereignty of God. I don't want to get off in this too much. Sovereignty of God, basically, their teaching of that is, well, because God's sovereign, and He is, God can do whatever He wants, and if God can do whatever He wants, then whatever's going on in your life must be God's will, because God's sovereign. Then why did Jesus pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Why did He teach us to pray, Your will be done, if God's will is already always done. Jesus himself in the garden says, not my will, but your will. Philippians says, for it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. So your will is involved. You have a will, because God, God let me go back and answer, the sovereignty, God is sovereign. But sovereignty means nobody can make him do something he doesn't want to do. And a sovereign, I usually express it this way, God is sovereign. And a sovereign God, out of a sovereign act of his sovereign will, gave you your own will. So you didn't take it from him, because you can't, because he's sovereign. But he can give it to you. I'll give an example of that, because this goes back to my legal experience as a real estate lawyer. Those large commercial buildings, I don't know if it's still true anymore, because I represented clients that would build some of these buildings or own the land under them. So most of the buildings, the large office buildings in Boston, I don't know if it's true anymore, the land on which the building was built was owned by one company. The building itself was owned by another company who built the building on the other company's land. So how can you do that? 
because the owner of the land gave the second company the lease, the right to build the building on their land. And then the owner of the building leased out office spaces to law firms and offer companies and other companies. So the company, when they signed a lease in the building, that lease gives you the exclusive right to possess that office space, even to the point that the landlord can't come in unless they, the owner can't come in unless they obey certain conditions. So you've delegated, the owner's delegated to you the right to possess that apartment or that office, but they still own it. God delegated the earth to man. He sublet it to man. God's still the owner, but when he sublet it, man now had the authority over it. He had the right to exercise his authority over it and the responsibility for it. Satan then comes in and he steals the sublease and convinces man to sublease his sublease to Satan. But God still owns the buildings. That makes sense to you? I don't know how I got off on all that. Oh, the, 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 um, the, the sovereignty of God. I've got to get back on track here. All right. Okay. So Job now becomes... Oh, God, we think God's smarter than we are, and He is, so we just have to endure whatever happens. And, and that takes Satan completely out of the picture. If whatever happens to us must be God's will, then what's, who's Satan? He's the God of this earth. So most of what's going wrong in this earth is being orchestrated by the God of this earth. And that's another whole teaching we're not going to get into tonight. Okay, all right. So let's go to Job 13. This is where Job begins to answer his friends. And we get some insight here. Behold, my eyes have seen all this. My ears have heard this and I understand it. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you. In other words, look, I know what you're talking about. I'm, I'm, you're not smarter than I am. But I would speak to the Almighty... And I desire to reason with God. So now we're beginning to see something else coming out of Job. Job's beginning, his friends are discussing why this has happened. And Job's now beginning to express, I really want to talk to God about this. And I desire to reason with him. Verse 4. But you forgers of lies, you're all worthless physicians. That's so powerful. You've come to try to heal me, and your efforts to heal me are worthless. You're, you've written, you're writing, writing lies about this situation. Verse 5. Oh, that you would be silent, and that would be your wisdom. That's, we could learn something from that. Verse 6. Now hear my reasonings, and hear the pleadings of my lips. Let's go over to verse 12. Your platitudes of Proverbs are like ashes, your defenses are defenses of clay. Keep going. Hold your peace with me and let me speak and let, and let come on me what may. In other words, I'm going to say something to God. Hey, whatever happens, happens. So he's beginning to see his frustrations beginning to come out. Verse 14. Why do I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? In other words, I'm going to be bold and stand up to God and whatever happens to me happens. 
Though he slay me, this is one of the most famous verses in Job or the Bible. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Stop there a second. I believe Job is sincere there. That's an amazing statement. Though God slays me, yet I am going to trust him. What we're going to find out either later tonight or next week is that's what he believed, but that's not where he was. Do you know, you can believe you're somewhere and be sincere until you get under pressure and find out you're not where you think you are? Even so, see, if he stopped there, yet if you slay me, I would trust him. It would have been great, but he keeps on going. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. What we're seeing is, summing up from inside of Job, he believes he has a case against God. He also shall be my salvation, for a hypocrite cannot cannot come before him. Listen carefully to my speech and my declaration with your ears. Verse 18. See now, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be vindicated. Verse 19. Who is he will contend with me? If now I hold my tongue, I perish. In other words, he's building up to speak directly to God and to challenge God. Job becomes increasingly angry because he believes he has a just cause against God. In other words, why did this happen to me? Let's go to Job 9, 32. This is so powerful. Talking about God here now. Here's his frustration. For he's not a man as I am, that I may answer him that we should go to court together. Do you realize what he's saying here? We'll talk more about this next week. He's saying, here's my frustration. If anybody else did this to me, I could get justice done by suing you and bringing you to court. But it's God. I can't get God into court. Look at verse 33. Nor is there a mediator between us who may lay hands on both of us. In other words, if this were a human being that I was dealing with, I could bring him before a judge and the judge would weigh what's right and wrong and he would make a just decision here. But I can't do that because it's God that's done this to me. What he's saying is, he's believing, I've not been treated justly, and because it's God, there's nothing I can do about it. Notice his complaint. Nor is there a mediator, the King James's daysman, nor is there a mediator between us who may lay his hands on both. But I suggest to you, there is a mediator between God and man. Hebrews tells us who he is. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our high priest. A priest in the Bible is a mediator between two different groups that cannot contact or relate to one another. And the high priest on the Old Testament tabernacle system was the mediator between God and man. Hebrews chapter 7 lays all this out. But there was a forerunner to the ultimate high priest, who was Jesus Christ. And because of the price he paid for us on the cross, I don't have time to go through how he did it. It's so powerful. He is now a mediator between us. He bridges the gap between sinful man 
and a holy God so that Hebrews tells us in chapter 9 and 10 so that we can come boldly to a throne of grace so that we can enter with boldness by a new and living way having our hearts washed with, with, for, with, in, for the pure conscience and our bodies washed with pure water we can come openly and honestly and unreservedly into the presence of a holy God because we have a mediator who always lives to make intercession for us so we have somebody who can argue our case before God. Job didn't. Job didn't. We're still looking at why. Why, Pastor John, are you talking about this? Chapter 31, Job begins to list all the things he's done right throughout his life. In other words, Job is making his case. I've done this, I've never said it, I've never treated my wife wrongly, I have never spoken a bad word, I have always treated my neighbors correct. You ought to look at verse chapter 31. It is a list of everything Job thinks he's done right, which is his case of why this is unjust that this should happen to me. Job 31:35. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here's my mark that the Almighty would answer me that my prosecutor had a written book. Next verse. So surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bang it on me like a crown. No, he's not answering me. You ever feel like that? God, why? And there's no answer. One of C.S. Lewis's books, C.S. Lewis, of course, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, but also one of the powerful books called Mere Christianity, which is very instrumental in my salvation. But he wrote a book on pain and suffering, and it was stimulated by two major events in his life. One was his mother dying of cancer when he was about nine years old, and he had prayed, and she died anyway. And the other was later in his life, he'd been married later in life, and he, he, is, he was very happy for three years, and then his wife gets cancer and dies, and he prays, and his wife still dies. And it's a story of, of under, trying to understand what this pain and suffering is that he went through. Very powerful principles in there. And he talks about uh, of, of getting mad. He's saying, you know, I would get mad. It's like sometimes, you know, maybe you've ever felt this way in the middle of a crisis. It's like he said, it was like you send a letter to somebody that comes back, returned to sender. It was never even opened. So that's what my prayers were like. And then at one point, God's love and mercy breaks through to him when he gets an understanding like we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. Surely, in other words, he's frustrated. God won't answer me. He's not answering my charges. This is unjust. This is unfair. Now, when you go back to the beginning of the book, you don't see any of this in Job. He's righteous. He says all the right things. But gradually, under pressure... What's down in his heart begins to come out. Verse 37. I would declare to him the number of my steps, and like a prince I would approach him. Then a young man named Elihu appears around chapter 38. And there are various versions of people thinking what he is, but I believe he's speaking on behalf of God. And let's go, to, let's go down to... Um, Job 38.1. The Lord... No, no, I'm ahead of myself. Excuse me. 
I got ahead of myself. So Elihu basically says, says, you know, I've, I'm a, he's a young man. He's, I'm a young man, and I've listened to you older gentlemen, and out of respect, I've kept my mouth shut, but I can't keep my mouth shut anymore. Job is speaking out of his own self-righteousness. And the rest of you have spoken nothing but lies. And then he goes on to speak on behalf of God. We'll talk a little bit about this next time because he talks about how God does correct us because there are methods by which God does bring correction. But he tells us, tells us what they are. But now we're going to go to chapter 38. This is my favorite part of the whole thing. Remember what Job said? He said, oh, that I could bring God into court because I got some questions I want to ask him. So, you know, I'm, an old lawyer, old, I'm not I'm an old lawyer. I'm a retired lawyer. Okay, that was a long time ago. I get this scene of a courtroom. And you get Job, who's the, who's the plaintiff. He's the complainant. And he's got this case he's built up, and I just, want to get, I just want to get him into court, and I get somebody who can judge between us, because what I've done is I'm not being treated correctly, and he's the one that's behind this ultimately. And i got some serious questions to ask him, and the main one is, Why? Why did this happen? This is unjust. That's what's behind the question, why? Good things happen to us. We don't usually ask, why did that happen? We just think, I'm glad that happened. But when we don't want, when we, what we want doesn't happen, or when we don't want happens, we want to know why, because we think we're not being treated justly. And that's at the crux of this. So now he gets what he asked for. After Elihu's been speaking for several chapters, on behalf of God, I get this picture. It's almost as if God stands up and says, boy, step aside. I want to answer the questions myself. And I just want to, I'm going to read down through some of these. What did I give you? Let's start. Job, Job 38.1. And the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought of this before. When Elijah goes on his pity party after he's killed the prophets of Baal and, and, and uh, Jezebel puts a death warrant out on him and he gets scared and runs away and he ends up hiding in a cave and he's feeling sorry for himself. Same thing. He's hiding in the cave and it says these different things pass by but God's not in them. And one was a whirlwind passes by and God's not in it. But a still small voice speaks to the prophet. This isn't a still small voice. God's upset. And the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind. Verse 2. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Job. These three friends of his have all been speaking all kinds of words and God says, who is it that darkens true counsel with words without knowledge? Verse 3. Now prepare yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you will answer me. So Job's been asking why, and now God's going to ask him some questions. And they're not going to have it for you back there, but I want to just go down and read through some of these. It goes on for chapter after chapter. He's, well, we'll talk about this next week, what God's doing here. But I want to show you what he doesn't say. Where were you? When I laid the foundations of the earth, tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know that. Who you, oh, 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 or who stretched out the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Still trying to figure that out. 
And who laid its cornerstones? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who shut up the sea with its doors, who bursted forth with the issues from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling land, when I fixed my limit on it and set bars on the doors, when I said, that's too far for you to come, don't go any farther, and here are your proud waves. You know, where were you when I did all this? Have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. So God's cross-examining him, and basically God is putting him back in his place. And we'll see next week, this is very loving, because Job, out of pride, has gotten out the, beyond the boundaries of who he really is. And God is putting him back in his place by basically reminding Job who Job is and who God is. Let's go over to... Um, just keeps asking these questions. He's beating him down with these questions. Let's go to chapter 40, verse 1. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Or he rebukes God? Let him answer it? Now Job goes on at this point in verse 3. They're not going to have it. It says, Job answers the Lord and said, Behold, I'm vile. I'll go through this next week because he's still feeling sorry. He's feeling sorry for himself. If I lay my hand on my mouth, once I've spoken, I will not answer. Yet twice I will not proceed any further. And then the Lord keeps going, going. He said, Lord, answer Job out of the world and says, Now prepare yourself like a man and I will question you and you answer me. In other words, Job keeps saying, so Job is basically saying, Oh, I've been a fool. I've spoken things I shouldn't. And God knows he's not at the root of it yet. So he says, stand up like a man, and I'm going to ask you some questions. And he starts all over again with this whole line of questionings. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like His? Then adorn yourself with majesty? Disperse the, rage of, the wrath of your rage? And keeps going on. And on and on and on and on. Can you draw a leviathan, a, a whale, with a hook? Who then is able to stand before me? Who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. And Job answered the Lord. This is chapter 42. They'll put that up there. Job answered the Lord. Now he's contrite. Job answered the Lord, verse 2, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is this who hides counsel with knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Next verse. Listen, please, and let me speak, and I will question you that you shall answer me. This is God speaking. I've heard of you by the hearing of my ear, excuse me, but now my eyes see you. Something's changed in Job. And again, we'll talk more about this next week. Something's changed in Job, but Job's now saying, I know, I've known about you. 
I've known who you are. But now my eyes see you. Not these eyes, but the eyes of the heart. I now see who you are. Now what goes on to happen is God, God ends up angry at Job's friends. And God has Job pray for his friends. And then God restores everything to Job that he lost. And he blessed him for many more years. So Pastor John, why? (laughs) What's all this about? The first 38 chapters are Job, his three friends, all postulating why has this happened, this terrible thing happened to a righteous, good man. Now what's behind that question often when it happens to someone else is then it could happen to me. Why am I safe? See, we want to know why because that helps us. If we can have an understanding, then it gives us a sense of control because our mind likes to know that things fit in nice, orderly thing so there's a predictability. And I've used this a number of times in, in funeral sermons when somebody young has died unexpectedly or someone has died unexpectedly because I would find one of my first questions, well, well how old are they? And I went, why do I ask that? Because if they're above a certain age, which now keeps going up for me, they're above a certain age, well, that's the natural order of things. So if somebody 95 dies, it's, it's, I'm sorry, but it's not shocking that somebody 95 should die. Somebody 15 dies, that's out of the ordinary. Now things are not under control. Things are not within my understanding and control. And way back to Genesis 3 where we started, we want to know that we can understand things because when we can understand them and fit them into our understanding, then we have some measure of predictability and then some measure of control. And that's what God wants to free us from. Because when we have control, He doesn't. When we have to understand, then we're not trusting. So, what's this all about, Job? 38 chapters, they're discussing why. God speaks for four chapters, says all kinds of powerful things, and the one thing God never says is why. God never answers why this happened. Why does God never say why? Because what God told them is the one thing God wanted to do. He wanted to remind Job of who he is. There's a New Testament version of this. God's answer is to remind Job who he is and to restore to Job the right perspective. Everything in our life might, must flow from this right perspective that he is the creator and I am the creation. And when we get into this grace of God, we tend to forget that. Romans chapter 9. Paul gets at some things here that are very difficult. He just finished eight chapters on the grace of God. In Romans 9, he begins to talk about Israel and how do they fit into the grace and the Gentiles. And God, his message basically is, is that God has used the, the rejection of Israel rejecting Christ. God's used that to teach Israel by making Israel jealous for what he's done for the Gentiles. 
And then he says, is that fair that God's done that? And so he's using an example here of Jacob's wife, Rebekah. When she conceives within her, she has, she has twins that are conceived in her. And the law of the land at that time was the firstborn son had inherited everything. It was called the, the law of autoprimogenitor. The firstborn son had all the birthrights of the father. So he's talking. So what happens is, if you remember the story from the Old Testament, Esau is about to come out first, which means he'll be the firstborn. Jacob, his, the second one, grabs his heel and pulls him back so that he can come out first. And his name is, is given as Jacob, which means supplanter or the one who took somebody else's place in line, basically. So, but here's what's behind that. Not only this, but when Rebekah had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, next verse, for the children had not yet been born, look at this, not having yet done anything good or evil, but that the purpose of God's election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls him. Verse 12. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Now that's wrong in terms of man's law, but God's the one that determined that. So the issue is, keep going, is that fair? As it is written, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I have hated. Well, wait a minute, this can't be right. I thought God loves everybody. What shall I say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? This is the same question. Why? And what's behind the why is God acting unrighteously. Because if he's acting unrighteously, what chance do we have? What shall I say? Is there any unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. So somewhere we're wrong in that thinking, just as Job was. Because we're thinking in human terms. Next verse. For he says to Moses, now he's going to talk about Pharaoh. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Verse 16. So then, it's not him who wills or him who runs, but God who shows mercy. So what he's saying to there, he says, go back to the verse before this. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I will have compassion. Because the argument was God's not being fair because he's judging Pharaoh for not letting the people go. He, he hardened Pharaoh's heart and then he judged Pharaoh for having a hard heart. And the argument, that's not fair. And God's answer is, who are you to decide what's fair for God to do? Because look with the argument. I will have mercy on who I'll have mercy and compassion on who I'll have compassion. And so, well, if God chooses to have mercy on one person, not another, he's not saying that God's not merciful to everybody. He's saying, but what if God said that? Because the, the, the lesson here is mercy is something that's not deserved. And we forget that. We think we're entitled to mercy. So he's saying to Moses here, look, I have the right to have mercy on whom I have mercy. You don't have a right to mercy, so you can't call me unrighteous if I'm not merciful to somebody because I don't have an obligation to be merciful. By the way, I am, but we're not talking about what he does. We're talking about what we have a right to demand of him or expect of him. You understand what I'm saying? Okay. Good. Three of you do. That's good. We'll keep going. Verse 16. We've got to move on. So then it's not him who wills, or him who runs is not what we do, but it's God who shows mercy. Keep going. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, now he's going to use Pharaoh's again, for this purpose I raised you up that I may show my power in you that my name be declared in the earth. Verse 18. Therefore he has mercy on whom he has mercy. So this, he's referring back to where he says, and he hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he could prove that God was stronger than Pharaoh. Well then why is it fair, no pun intended, why is it fair to judge Pharaoh? if God hardened his heart. And God's basically saying, That's, you don't have a right to ask that question. That's the wrong question. I showed mercy to my people. I don't have an obligation to show mercy to anybody, but I do show mercy because I choose to show mercy. See, what we do is we, we want to treat, we want to think of God in terms of what we think of each other. That's what Job's doing. He said, this isn't fair. If anybody else did this to me, I would be able to get justice because I could bring them into court and somebody with the authority would make the decision. But because it's God, I can't do that. So basically, Job is saying, I have an equal right with God to justice. Next verse. You will say to me, then who finds fault? For who can resist his will? Verse 20. But indeed, O man... Who are you to reply against God? Paul understands this. He's putting them in his place. Who are you to stand up to God and say, why? Now, why? Because you want to have an answer, because you want to learn and grow. That's different. But why did this happen? Why is this basically challenging? Why did you let this happen? Indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to who formed it? Why did you make me like this? This is the creator-creation relationship. And Job forgot that and crossed the line. And when we challenge God as to why would you let this happen, when we think of things that God has done, whether God was right or wrong, we have crossed the line and we're considering ourselves equal with God enough so we could bring him into court to get some independent party who is just to decide between God and me. Does the potter have the power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel of honor and another of dishonor? Now, Paul's not saying that's what God did. What Paul's saying is, we don't have a right to ask that question. Because when we do, we put ourselves on an equal footing with God. And that's exactly what Satan tempted them in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. I want to close with this verse. This is so, we know this verse so well, but it is the root of so much in our lives. Proverbs chapter 3. Oh, did I mess it up again? Yep. I don't know where my mind was today. Well, I can quote it to you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. Hmm? Six. Six. Okay, yeah. Five. Okay, I just went off. I knew that. Thank you. Trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord with all your understanding. 
and lean not on your heart. <laughs> Trust in your understanding about why this happened. Trust in your understanding. No. Trust in the Lord. There it is, your heart. Trust in your Lord with all your heart and lean not on your understanding. doesn't mean you can't have understanding, but don't rely on your understanding. Don't make your understanding be the basis of whether you're going to trust God or not. Trust Him because of who He is. He deserves, He's entitled for us to trust Him. In fact, in the New Testament, well, it's really in the whole Bible, one of the biggest issues with God is unbelief. I don't know if you said it Sunday, but somebody said it to me recently. Unbelief is a form of idolatry. I'm choosing to believe what I understand above God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. That means be conscious of Him and who He is, and then He will direct your paths. Maybe the reason some of us are not getting more direction from God is we're not trusting with all our heart. All our heart. We're, we're, we're hedging our bets. We're trusting God as long as things look good, but I've got, a, I've got a backup plan over here, which means I'm not trusting Him with all my heart. I'm testing Him out. I'm trying Him out to see, can I trust God so, 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 so I, I, I'm not going to tithe. I'll get into that down the road. I'm not going to tithe, but I'll, I'll do something like that and see, see well how it works. You can't test God. God will test you, but you can't test God. You either trust Him or you don't. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways... Acknowledge him. That just means recognize who he is. And he will, he will direct your path. So why? That's the wrong question. God never answered why. And sometimes God speaks the loudest for what he doesn't say. God's only answer to why was remember who I am. God's only answer to why. And God didn't do that. We'll see this as we go down the road. God didn't do that because he was mad at Job. God did this to deliver Job from things that were going on inside of him that he didn't know. Because when he'd finished the process, he blessed him more than he was blessed before. Let's pray.